Every day is a brand new adventure. So let's embark on this journey together. City News 570 presents Kitchener Today. Here's special guest host, Ian McLean. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I am, in fact, Ian McLean, President and CEO of the Greater Kitchener Waterloo Chamber of Commerce. Happy to be with you to share some of your Friday afternoon. We got a great show today. Uh, I've got some of uh, some of my favorite people and fascinating guests. We're going to be joined in just a minute by Mark Johnson. She's on Kitchener Council. Uh, we're going to be joined by the inimitable Mike Farwell to talk about uh, something that's near and dear to his heart, but important for the community, which is Farwell for Hire. Val Walker from the Business Higher Education Roundtable, talking about students and post-secondary students and experiential learning. Matt Bondi, who's a good friend of ours from Communitech, but also the chair of the Trillium Foundation in Ontario. Mike Harris Jr. is the MPP for Kitchener-Conestoga. We're going to talk to him about his experiences in his first term. And then finish the uh, our, our uh, afternoon together by talking to uh, one of my now good friends, Joe Birch. And he, of course, is the general manager of the Kitchener Rangers. Someone that I know virtually. I've still not actually met him in person because he was one of those people that started uh, his job with the Rangers right at the beginning of the pandemic. So it's uh, uh, going to be a fascinating show. But but we're joined now by um, uh, Margaret Johnson, and she, of course, is a counselor for um, Ward 8, which I believe is Westmount Forest Hill. And Marg, we're old friends. Uh, we we kind of uh, go to the, go to the, went to the same church. We've, we've kind of been in public service. You've been on the school board and on city council, but I was fascinated by the, um, uh, the exciting conversation that was happening around the Belmont village development. And I wanted to kind of, I, th- I thought it would be important to, to kind of have you on to discuss all of the competing interests, uh, around that project. And it's great to have you in the show because one of the things that we hear and and certainly Kitchener council during this last two years of COVID and very focused on how we support small business, economic development, job creation is really important, but so is housing and housing is the one thing. It's one of the number one things that, that Greg and I at the chambers of commerce hear constantly is we need housing choice for our, for our workforce. Um, and so maybe maybe give us a bit of a history of the development that we're talking about, where it's located, and and sort of the history of of um, uh, of the location because it's it's one of those places where you're going to see high high density residential. Yeah, thanks, Ian, and thank you so much for having me on here today. It's really it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to uh, to talk about um, my ward, to talk about Belmont Village. Um, I think what we discovered throughout this process uh, certainly is that Belmont Village is a gem in the community. It's everybody loves it. And I'm pretty sure that over the last 18 months, I kind of made a joke with Mike Farwell about this, that I think I heard from everybody in the city of Kitchener and probably the city of Waterloo had an opinion on, uh, on some changes to, to Belmont Village. Um, so the, the property that we're talking about is 660 Belmont. It's the old location of Dutton Tire. Uh, in the village, and there was a proposal uh, that came through from the Zaire Group to at first put in a 13-story building um, there, 
and uh, with a what we call it's a multi-use residential building, meaning that there was um, retail on the bottom and uh, residential then on top. So uh, over 18 months of uh, very comprehensive engagement with the community, uh, with our staff that were working with the ZARE group. Uh, at the end of the day, through uh, three different community or actual council meetings about this, uh, which is unprecedented. We have not done that before. Um, we arrived at um, a 10-story building on that site that's going to uh, going to be going in. Um, and uh, I appreciate that the, the community really did their homework on this, participated in two actual neighborhood information meetings and then 10 small group meetings over 18 months. It really, we haven't, we, it's unprecedented the, and I don't necessarily like that word, but the engagement that was here. And um, we always want to hear from people. I, I always say, Engagement is so very important. We want to have engaged citizens that care about their community, and that's really what what we saw here. Uh, Sorry. I just wanted to ask, you know, I know the site you're talking about. That's where I I go to yoga down there. That's my my dry cleaner. It's right near my neighborhood. And it it strikes me. It backs on to sort of um, some some, uh, a park and a a, – uh, part of the trail system um, and then you know it, it's it's a ways away from low-rise residential I know there was a lot of concern around that but this this part of Belmont Village was not it in the official plan that it was it was one of those places that was highlighted for density yeah, absolutely. So back in 2014, the uh, official plan was changed to make Belmont Village into an urban corridor. And what an urban corridor is, is as you would know, it really is uh, a place that's planned to accommodate more people and jobs. Uh, it's It should have a range of retail, commercial uses, and uh, intensification opportunities that's supported by transit and this this um, location really is as well and what's unique to Belmont Village is that we do have the Iron Horse Trail which is so heavily used it's an amazing uh, place and that really runs between kind of downtown Kitchener and uptown Waterloo so um, the envisioning of, of what we can do with Belmont Village is to really be able to draw those pedestrians and cyclists that are using the Iron Horse Trail as as well um, to be kind of part of uh, bring them more into into that corridor. So um, it's an exciting it's an exciting time. I'm really proud of Kitchener Council who supported me in uh, putting the resources together to support a study of Belmont Village. Because one of the things that happens, Ian, and you'll remember this probably from your time on on council as well, is that when zoning changes happen, people don't necessarily recognize what that might mean at the time, or maybe not enough people were informed about, um, you know, a a change, or really understand what that means. I I don't think that people know what zoning changes mean until it actually means something to them. Well, yeah, I I think that that's so important. I, I remember our version of this was the West Side story, which is the West Side lands in Waterloo. 
Right. We talked about that every council meeting for seven years, and people were still astonished that it was it was set for development, even though that decision had been made by a prior city council 30 years prior. And right. there really was no way of stopping development. It was about how we managed through that. And I think that's the case here is, is that, that it was not something that you were going to stop. And the real question is, is how do councils deal with when there's conflict? Uh, do you do you throw up your hands and say what people, some people may want to hear and let someone in Toronto make the decision? Or do you still try and make a made in the local uh, area solution? And it seems to me that's what you did. You know, lots of consultation. I, I always view when I read the newspaper reports and kind of watched with, uh, it wasn't quite, schadenfreude but i i watched with amazement because i've been in some of those consultations is everyone was just a little bit annoyed which means it's probably the right answer um but it, but it, you, you brought it down it's not as high as it was it's it, you it, there's there's some other concessions that were made by the developer right. and you're doing a full comprehensive review of the neighborhood so that moving forward because there will be more development in belmont village it's 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 prime for more development what are the rules of the road so that people have that fresh in their mind now? Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, frankly, as um, as a city councillor uh, and as a community member, you know, we need to deal with, we're, we're mandated by the provincial government to deal with developments and applications as they come to us. So the proactive piece that we would really like to uh we're not always able to be proactive because we have to deal with, with what comes. So that's why I'm really excited about the opportunity to do this planning study. Uh, we're going to be hiring a uh, consulting group to come in and do the engagement. It will be happening throughout the, uh, the summer and fall, starting in the, in the late spring, but throughout the summer and fall. And it will give opportunity for for businesses, for neighbors, for anyone interested in Belmont Village to come forward, let us know about what what they're uh, what they're interested in in seeing there as a as a destination. So it's going to reexamine existing planning policies, bylaws, and urban design um, guidelines, but in keeping with the official plan. So there will not be be changes to that, but it will really give people that opportunity. And I think that's what we heard from people is that they were surprised when the development application for 660 Belmont came forward and they wanted to have a say in, in what they want to see there. So we'll have that opportunity. Like I said, it is, it's not going to change. It's, it is an urban corridor, which means it's going to have that mix of retail, commercial, and, uh, and residential there. But what, do, what else do people want to see there? And from a broad range of, uh, of people in interest. Maybe just quickly, because we're going to go to break in a minute. And I'm yeah. going to have you back after the break, because we've got a couple other things I want to get to. But just refresh, and because and I mean, I, I've actually forgotten most of this because I haven't been on council now right. in 11, 12 years. But the official plan is, is done. It's the highest level. It tells you generally what's going to be there. And then you get into, right. into, the, into the local planning and then an application comes for a specific site. It has to fit all those things. So you're not suggesting that the that the highest that 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 urban corridor is going to be changed. It's it's what are some of the pieces that fall under that that would be that we want to bring clarity to. What do people want to see? And if you can make changes on that, but it is going to be one of those areas where you're going to see more height. You're going to see more density. You're going to see more multi residential because that's where the official plan designates that that 
they should happen is in places like that. Yeah, and and the the difference between the official plan and what um, mixed use residential zoning is is that there there can be whenever you're putting in retail on the bottom uh, up to fifty percent more than what is in the official plan, and that's that's truly where I think the crux of the concern came from in the neighborhood. But to put in, as you can well imagine, to put in restaurants, to put in a grocery store, etc., in a building you don't put eight foot ceilings in they have to be uh 12 foot so right there that's making that uh that higher so you know um so that that piece will not be up for debate but things around kind of the uh urban design guidelines and and what people want to see as facades and uses and different things there those are going to be things that we can talk about that will become part of the new official plan that will be worked on in 2023 Listen, uh, it, it's, a, it's a little detail, but it's important to, uh, to both neighborhoods, but also to the community as a whole, because uh, we need more housing. We need more housing choice. Uh, and it's going to happen by and large because we're not doing it on greenfields anymore. It's going to happen in our built up urban environment. So fascinating discussion. Stick around. We're going to go to a news break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to talk. Of, I've got a few more uh, questions for you, uh, but we'll be back in a minute. We're going to we are going to move into a uh, news break. We'll be back with more on Kitchener today on City News 570. are back on Kitchener today on City News 570. I'm Ian McLean. We continue our conversation with Kitchener Councillor Mark Johnson, and she's the Councillor in Ward 8, which is West Mountain and Forest Hill. Mark, before the break, we talked about the, uh, the Belmont Village development, but it got me thinking you've been not only served as a City Councillor, but in your previous, not life, but your previous role, you were a, a public school board trustee. And it got me thinking, what are, because you'll still have uh, similar roles in terms of being an advocate and a, and a, and a governor of, of the education system as a school board chair, but some of that is the consultation process with, with families and educators. Are, are there any differences that you, that, or what are the similarities and what are the differences? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I actually get asked that um, from people who are considering running in the in the upcoming municipal elections as well. Yeah, so there there is a um basically both roles are governance roles. And that's not something that everybody understands, but it's a really important thing to consider. That uh when I was a school board trustee, we had one uh, one employee that we looked after, which was the uh, the super uh, the director of education, and really that's the same at, at the city level as well. We have the uh, chief administrative officer for the city of Kitchener, and our roles are to be governance roles and uh, operations, and that really is to be is to be done by by staff. That's always a kind of a a, a fine line to explain to both residents and to parents. Uh, as well. So I loved my time as a school board trustee. I have a a degree in education. Um, I work in the education sector uh, in my full-time job as well. And uh, that does mean so much to me. Though what I love at the city is that I'm able to, from a big bigger picture perspective, take my background from education and uh, and use that at the city as well. So I'm entirely blessed that I've, I've been able to look at things from kind of both perspectives. 
Now, now, as as a school board trustee, you're elected citywide, so you're elected uh, across the city of Kitchener. Um, in as a city council, you're elected in a ward, but you do represent not only the ward, but you have your decisions are actually citywide decisions. Very few yeah. of them, in fact, none of them are are here's the decisions we're making for Ward Eight. It's decisions right. that you make on behalf of the whole city. Does does that change the way that you that that you approach the job? Is it is it is it ward? For, you know, you have to take care of your ward. That's what you're you're meant to be that voice. But right. how do you balance that? I guess between your interests of the ward, but also then having to pass a citywide budget and citywide decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? At, at times like this, when when we were just talking about Belmont Village, that can be a little trickier because you are you're so you've done such a deep dive into what is going uh, on in your particular ward. But and I I stress this with people that I am one of eleven votes around that table that make collective decisions and make um, fiduciary decisions on behalf of, of the city. And that that is the role that's entrusted uh, to us is to make the best decisions for the entire the entire city. Um, but it can be tricky at times. 100%. You know that. <laughs> it's, it's a balancing act. There's no there's no doubt about that. Um, yeah. but, but I always tried to when when I was on council, and I think what you're trying to stress here is when you're passing a budget, you're not passing a Ward 8 budget. You're no. passing a, a city of Kitchener budget. And it's so, you, have nice. to, you know, it's it's from that from that larger view. Listen, only got a couple of minutes left, but I, I, I've been asking every over the last six weeks that I've been doing this on Friday afternoons because I find it fascinating. Everyone has experienced COVID in the last two years differently, um, yeah. whether it's from their professional roles, how they worked, family, personally. And so I asked the question, what, what, what's the takeaway or what are one or two of the observations for you, whether it's personal or, or uh, professional, um, from your, the last two years of COVID? Yeah, well, I will actually use a kind of a ward um, perspective on this. So we have a, an amazing community center, the Victoria House Community Center in my ward. And it's actually surrounded by an area of very high density housing uh, and where a lot of people lived in congregated settings. And these are people that were on the front lines, PSWs and that, and a lot of new Canadians that live in that, in that area. So through work uh, that you did with best WR with our, uh, with the region, with the city, actually at a community level, I was able to, uh, to work with our staff to get, um, COVID-19 um, uh, language and that translated and put onto our community center signs where we talked about, you know, social distancing, vaccinations available, using our community centers as a hub to do testing, to do vaccination, to have a food bank drop off every Monday there. Um, and actually also to look at data based on our postal codes and, and frankly, um, um, race-based data so that we could be putting the best services in at our local level. And I'm so proud of our staff that listened to um, counselors on that and, and were able to, to provide those services in people's neighborhoods that were needed most. Well, that's important is that we needed to, to understand that different communities were experiencing it differently. Listen, we're out of time. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've been joined by Mark Johnson. She's a counselor for Ward 8, which is Westbound Forest Hill. We'll be back. We're going to take a quick news break, and we'll be back after that with our good friend Mike Farwell. You're listening to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Here's special guest host, Ian McLean. 
Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm so pleased to be with joining you this afternoon. I am now joined by the inimitable Mike Farwell. And that name may sound familiar to some of you because I think he just finished his own show. But it's always good to have Mike. We try and have him on business to business at least once a year because there's something that we like to promote. And that we think is really, I think is really important is, is the Farwell for Hire program. And so, Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. I, I, I really wanted to, to take the opportunity to, to hear more about Farwell for Hire. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure, Ian, as always. And I, and I got to tell you, I really enjoy sharing this platform with you because I am a regular and loyal listener to Business to Business with you and Greg every Sunday from noon until one. And I love listening when you're filling in as a guest host on Kitchener Today. So honestly, this is an absolute thrill for me. Well, I I appreciate the the nice thoughts. And I I always say that 570 is getting what they, the City News 570 is getting what they pay for. (laughs) When you get free hosts, you get what what you pay for. But listen, Let's let's dig in a little bit. I, I always find it fascinating, and some of your listeners may may know of it, but others that don't listen on a regular basis, tell us about the origins of Farwell for Hire. I think it's important for people to understand because uh, you have made this into an amazing um, opportunity to support a, a cause that's really important to you. And others should know that this started with an idea from a pers- from you personally, and it has grown because you put the time and energy into it. It certainly has grown, and it does come from a very personal place. But I, I have to truly give credit, Ian, and and I mean this sincerely. I'm not trying uh, in any way to be uh, some sort of uh, – this is not fake modesty by any stretch. It's really this community, and I, I mean that with utmost sincerity, that made this goofy idea that I had fly. And so I'll take you back to the beginning because, as you mentioned, yes, it, it comes from a very personal place for me. So the Farwell for Hire fundraising campaign raises money in support of research into cystic fibrosis, which remains to this day uh, the most common fatal genetic disease affecting Canadian children and young adults. So there is to this day still no cure. However, uh, the research and, and progress on finding that cure has been absolutely remarkable. And this community, with the money we've been able to raise through Farwell for Hire, is a key part of that progress because of the monies that have been raised here. For me, it is so personal because two of my sisters, I come from a family of five, four siblings plus me, my parents, I don't know how they did it to this day, but two of my sisters were born with that genetic disease, cystic fibrosis. And because, as I mentioned, it's fatal, I I lost my sisters to cystic fibrosis uh, going back almost 30 years now. It's, it's, uh, It's hard to imagine. So this was a part of my life. I watched what my sisters had to go through. I, I very sadly had to watch my sisters succumb to the disease, and it was it was a difficult time. It was a difficult time for my family. Again, I would talk about my parents, and, and I still wonder to this day how they had the strength to endure burying not one but two children inside the same 12-month period. Even though you knew it was coming because of the disease, it, it can't be easy. It was certainly difficult on me, and I know my siblings as well. So in the Early 1990s, when we lost my sisters, uh, I I took a little bit of a break from all things cystic fibrosis. But as I I moved on and and began into a broadcasting career, I thought, well, maybe there's a way that I can play a part in raising awareness, maybe raising some funds along the way 
through doing some charitable works on behalf of or alongside cystic fibrosis. And that's what I started doing. I just started getting involved with the local chapter of Cystic Fibrosis Canada in any way that I could. And ultimately, that led to the Farwell for Hire idea. And I I said before, it was kind of a goofy idea because really that's what it was. Year after year, I would go with a a mass email to all of my contacts or go to my usual friends and, and extended family members and ask for a donation. It was as simple as that, like many of us do when it comes to a cause that matters to us. And, you know, you raise some money and, and contribute it to the annual walk uh, for cystic fibrosis, which happens on the last Sunday of May every year. And after doing that for year after year after year, I, I just, frankly, I got a little bit tired of just asking. And I thought, I wonder, I wonder if there's something I could do that's a little bit different. I could maybe offer something in return for my friends and family members' donations. And so I, I just had this idea, what if I... What if I offered to mow your lawn? What if I offered to wash your car? What if I offered to do a chore for you in exchange for the donation? And that's how the Farwell for Hire concept was born. And it started back in 2014. It runs for the entire month of May because May is Cystic Fibrosis Awareness Month. And and that first year, I, I, I had no idea if this was going to catch on. I had no idea if anybody was going to hire me to do anything, but it worked Beyond my wildest expectations, and in May of 2014, we raised just over $20,000 by me literally being on my hands and knees, digging in dirt, climbing ladders, whatever it took. And the campaign has has only, like this community, again, I, I insist, just took up to it and, and, and pushed me to greater heights each and every year to the point that last year, in the eighth year of the campaign, we raised just over 223 thousand dollars in the month of may which puts us now as we head into year number nine and the month of may is just around the corner uh, about eight hundred and sixty thousand dollars has been raised just in this region just through the farwell for higher fundraising campaign so this year number nine of the campaign we think we think we might be able to get to the million dollar mark a hundred and forty thousand dollars away from there that's that is incredible and I, I, I find it fascinating how that's grown, and I think I think uh, that's the part of the message is if there's something important to you and you're prepared to put your time and effort into it and be authentic and genuine, uh, the community will support it. I, 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 there's also some uh, some funny things to, or or some humor to this. I want you to give us your top three or bottom three, I guess, as the case may be. What are the best and worst jobs or things you've had to do to earn? Farwell for higher dollars for cystic fibrosis. What are your top three? Well, the reality is, and I mean this sincerely as well, uh, I I say yes to basically everything. So early on, and then you talk about the humor, Ian. I think it was, I think it was the second year. Could have been the third. Either way, early on in the campaign, it seemed to turn into what's the weirdest slash craziest thing we can yeah. make Farwell do to earn a donation. So the the one day. Early on in the campaign, year two or three, I was asked uh, to clean the sheath of a horse. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll, I'll leave that to you to Google, which I had to do before doing it. And and once I was, once I had Googled it, I, I went back to the person making the request and I said, I, I think you need to be, like, you need some sort of veterinarian degree to do this. And she insisted, no, no, if anybody who's a horse person, they, they know this is something that we do. So bottom line is I, I applied 
uh, I put on a latex glove. I applied some the, the proper lubrication and I inserted my hand into the horse. And, and I'll just leave the rest to your imagination yeah. and your Googling yeah. skills. That was, that was absolutely one of them. Another time, and this one I still think back on because it was, it was very strange. Again, I put myself out there for any and all requests. And, and I got this request from a, a young woman who asked if I could come to her apartment and clean a light fixture above the bed in her bedroom. And, and I thought, I, like, this is not a situation I want to put myself in that is in any way uncomfortable, but I don't want to say no to the donation. So I, I did what I thought I, sh- I should do in advance. I, I had a friend go with me and, and wait yeah. outside the apartment just in case something went, like, because I don't really know who's on the other end of the email either. So anyway, I, I, I did it, and it turned out to be completely 100% innocent, and so I went there, and what it was was an old fluorescent light fixture, and it had a bunch of dead bugs inside. It took me literally three minutes to, to take off the the casing of the light and, and clean it out and, and put it back on, and $20 for the cause, and that was uh, that was the end of that. And so I was able to make a new friend and, and make a, get a donation to the campaign, and nothing untoward happened, and it was all great. And then one of my favorite stories to tell it comes from uh, a family, again, in the city of Kitchener. I'd, I'd never met them prior to uh, this email that asked me if I would take their turn in the carpooling uh, group to get the kids home from school. And so I'm like, yeah, I, listen, I can drive a car. I, it's not a problem for me. They just didn't want to mess up the rotation. They thought, hey, maybe this this Farwell guy will come and pick up our kids from school. And their kids just happened to be big fans of the radio station I was working at. So I thought, yes, absolutely, uh, I'm going to do this. So as this went along, and again, it all starts over email, it's okay. So you're going to go to our daughter's high school. You're going to pick up her and her friends. You're going to take them home, and we're going to give you our car in order to do that. So would you like to drive the, the, the Lexus SUV, or would you like to drive the Mustang convertible? I thought, well... I think the Mustang convertible sounds pretty good. Thank you very much. Yeah, right. Like, you know, so that's what I chose. And then they said, okay, well, you need to do this for us because we're out of town. So here's the, here's the key code to our garage that we'll give you. So you enter the, you know, I'm going to give you access to our garage and the keys will be waiting inside our sports car that, you know, and then the donation is going to be on the front seat. And I'm thinking like, yes and yes, but you're putting an awful lot of faith in somebody you've never met. So we arranged a phone call, and I, I had this very conversation with the gentleman's name is Mike Ciceretto. He's an absolute gem. He and his wife, Tanya, and the kids, uh, Alea and Cleo, are, are fabulous. And I, I've gotten to know them really well over the years, but I just thought, what what a leap of faith on the part of complete strangers. Yeah. And, and now we're, we're friends, and, and they've been incredibly supportive year over year and they've thrown parties that have helped us raise thousands of dollars at a time for the campaign but that initial ask was complete strangers sending an email pick up my kids from school use my sports car and here's the key code to my garage we trust you that much it's an absolute testament truly to the Ciceretto family really well you know that's that's kind of interesting because i want to pivot in a second to the to the rangers uh but there's a sense that because he they see you uh, or or listen to you on the radio or see you on Rangers games um, that they that they that they kind of know you right e- even though they may not have met you and and you do have a trustworthy face. <laughs> uh, before, before we leave this though, Mike, 
where can people go? Because May is just around the corner. Uh, we want to make sure we go blasting through the million dollar uh, raised amount. Where can people find Farwell for Hire and and, uh, and get themselves registered to to make a donation for? for doing one of their interesting jobs. Yeah, you can find me pretty much anywhere, as you just mentioned, Ian. I'm yeah. uh, I'm not difficult to find. And the best place to go uh, online-wise is kwcf.ca slash Farwell, the number four, higher. kwcf.ca slash Farwell for Hire. And that's got a direct link to how you can donate. It's got information about the campaign. And that's where you'll find all of the things that uh, that you would need in that regard. Listen, uh, before we take, we're going to take a break in about four, four and a bit minutes. And you'll understand I, I'm, I'm never on time, but I have to be because it's live radio. But in the last few minutes uh, before we go to a break, um, it's it's been two years of COVID and the Rangers, we had, you know, one season was... Uh, was was kiboshed it's been great having hockey back um i i kind of just want to get a sense because i i usually see you friday mornings when we record business to business so we we always talk about the rangers how are they doing what but i haven't talked to you recently where are the rangers at like i watched them on the tv they seem to have a good core of young young players pretty exciting hockey team that can score goals but are they going to make the playoffs this year it's a very exciting time, Ian, as we have this conversation. And my answer to your question will be yes. They have not yet assured themselves of that playoff spot, and this weekend's games are going to go a long way in determining that ultimate outcome. But I believe very much so that the Rangers will, yes, make the playoffs. And then who knows? You talked about the kiboshed year last year, and it's kind of been it's been a very strange year this year with some fans, no fans, 500 fans, yeah. full capacity. And it's just, and, and the rescheduling, we, the, the regular yeah. season was actually supposed to end last weekend, but we had to extend the season by a couple of weeks to get in all the games with all the postponements. So this is where we're at. There are six games to go in the regular season for the Kitchener Rangers. Uh, the first of those final six is tonight, but yes, I believe the team will make the playoffs. And, and since you brought them up, I should also, I'd be remiss if I didn't, recognize the the support i have had from this hockey club over the years for all like it's it's barely even most years they're coming to me saying what can we do to support your farwell for hire campaign again this year and i'm just i'm over the moon with the support i get from across the community and and the kitchener rangers organization and and to that end with the with the rangers uh, charitable arm, their their foundation piece with the uh, Rangers Reach. We will be running another community wide fifty fifty draw to support the Farwell for Hire campaign this year. So you can watch for that coming down the pipe pretty soon too. Well, and we'll maybe talk about that. I've got uh, I've got our good friend Joe Birch, uh, who I have never met in person, but know very well now over the last three years. Who's the chief operating officer um and gm of of the um or not gm a uh, chief operating officer of the, of the rangers listen lastly just on the rangers i i kind of maybe two months ago when they tr- they traded a couple of their veteran players like arbor jack guy who was a great he's going to be a great hockey player in the nhl th- for the montreal Canadiens, i might add um but 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 it seemed like they were kind of giving up on the season but boy they've got some some of the young players have really stepped up so um I, I don't, I mean, my sense is, I don't think we've got a, a Memorial Cup in play, but, you know, you make the playoffs with a young, exciting team, anything's possible. 
I'm glad you brought up Joe Birch's name. I've known Joe for a number of years, and I got the chance to tease him this year when I saw him at a game. I said, it's about time you started your job. Like, he came to work because his first year got washed out by COVID. I feel awful for the guy. He's a really good man and a really good hockey man. And so I... and. I'm not surprised you haven't met him in person yet, but please give him the same jab when you do get a chance to finally do that. Because you know, a little bit of slacking there. But on on the point of the team, you're right, Ian. This was a this was a year where the Rangers had to move out some assets to restock the draft cupboard, which is part of the cycle of junior hockey. And while a Memorial Cup may not be in the cards this year, you look at some of the young talent, you look at how well some of these young players have been playing through the second half of this season, and you can certainly see the potential of what is in the not-too-distant future for this hockey club. They are certainly building in that direction and trending in that direction right now. So enjoy this ride. I think they can make some noise in the playoffs because you just don't know what's going to happen once you get your ticket to the dance party. And the next couple of years, I believe, promise to be pretty interesting for the Kitchener Rangers. Well, I think we'll roll right from a Toronto Blue Jays World Series win right into next fall with the Rangers heading towards a Memorial Cup next year. So, Attaboy. listen, stick around. We got one one more short segment. I got a few more questions for you. Really appreciate you sticking around. We're, we're joined by our good friend Mike Farwell. We're going to take a quick break. This is Kitchener today on City News Five Seventy. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. And the conversation does continue with our good friend, Mike Farwell. And Mike, thanks for sticking around. i uh, got a couple more questions. I, I think one of the pieces uh, over the last six weeks on Friday afternoons as I've been um, kind of doing this show with the guests that have been coming on, I, 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 I've been asking the question, what have you, what have everyone's experienced COVID differently? It's impacted people in different ways. And so one of the questions I'll come to in a second is, what have you learned through that? But you have a unique position, just before we do get to that, of, of on a day-to-day basis, hearing from callers, talking to people. Um, what are, What is your sense of how people are, are viewing this reopening? Because we know COVID's not gone. We know infections are rising. Um, what's your sense? What's the, what's the word on the street um, as, as we're, you know, filled with optimism, yet there's still a lot of COVID around? Yeah, my sense, Ian, from what I'm hearing is that there is some, and I would emphasize the some reluctance and some misgivings around the reopening. But generally, again, it's just an anecdotal sense, but uh, most people seem to me to be eager to be returning to this sense of normalcy and seeing things start to reopen. Again, that is absolutely not across the board, but it seems to me that most are ready for this and and certainly have expressed in no uncertain terms how fatigued they are with all things pandemic 25 months later. Yeah, I think that that's what certainly the business community is 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 would say is the one non-negotiable is we cannot close the economy again. We can't can't do that, but we have to be smart about how we do reopen. And I guess that's uh, um, what what we, we see evidence of that. Listen, the last couple of minutes we have, and, I, and this is the question I've been asking. Um, the last two years, everyone, this is COVID and how it's impacted people has been very much, yes, a collective, because we've all struggled with it, but everyone's personal experience is different. What are a couple of observations you have uh, either professionally from your radio perch or personally um, that you take away from the last couple of years? 
Yeah, for us, it's really been uh, an interesting last month or so. And it's, I think, kind of changed our perspective on all things COVID because it, it came into our house. I was, I was away just a couple to a few weeks ago here from the radio station because I contracted COVID-19, the first in my family to do so. And it, it's interesting because three times vaxxed, followed all the rules. But I think we're at this point now where it is circulating and it's such a, um, a transmissible variant that many, like I've anecdotally, again, known many people in my social circle that have contracted it as well. So I think it, it was, if you can look at a bright side coming out of it, because uh, there, there was a great deal of fear. I remember the earliest days. It was, it was really scary. And, and even now, having gone through it, uh, there, were, there were a couple of rough days, but overall came out the other side and realized, okay, you know, we've had our vaccinations, we can withstand this. And I think it's shaped our perspective now as part of this reopening. We're still taking all of the precautions that that we can and should be taking. But we're also aware that for somebody that's reasonably healthy and fully vaccinated, maybe it'll be a few rough days and and we can get on with our lives from there. So I think it's changed the perspective a little bit, certainly in our household. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. I've said... uh... Uh, on 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 business business and and talking uh, uh, with with other folks around the community prior to my father getting it in at December 1st I knew a handful of people in the first two years that had actually got COVID um, but it's literally into the hundreds now since since the beginning of December so there's a lot of it out there and and I and I think your 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 point your point is well taken if we if we uh if we've been vaccinated and we we are cautious and take care of ourselves, we can manage through it. But I guess that's the uh, that's the trick. We got We got to make sure we uh, we we're smart about how we reopen. Listen, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I was I was fascinated to hear about Farwell for Hire. Make sure you go out and support Mike and his efforts to to get over that million dollar threshold of of uh, raising money for cystic fibrosis. Appreciate you joining us today. I appreciate the support, Ian. Thank you very much. All right, it's time for a news break. Coming back, coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Valerie Walker. She is the CEO of the Business Higher Education Roundtable. You're listening to Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. And we are joined now, as promised, by Valerie Walker. And she is the CEO of the Business Higher Education Roundtable. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me. Listen, um, this is uh, a, a, an exciting um, um, uh, program or, or uh, the work that you're doing is, is exciting for a lot of reasons, especially for the business community and for, for students. But uh, maybe let's rewind the tape a little bit and, and give people an, eye, an understanding of what the Business Higher Education Roundtable is and, and what you're tasked to doing. Yeah, so thanks again for the chance to be here. We, I'm, I'm a proud CEO of a, of a not-for-profit, nonpartisan organization whose members are businesses uh, as well as post-secondary institutions across the country. So that includes colleges, polytechnics, and universities. We were, we've been around for about five years, really coming into our own, I would say now, and in the last year or so. And, and at the core of it, Ian, what we do is identify problems, opportunities, if you want to put a positive framing on it, that exist for employers and for the leaders of post-secondary institutions. 
We bring them together. A major role is to get people talking around a table. That's why we call ourselves the round table. It starts with that. Identify what the priorities are that they wish they had solutions to. And then we go out and try to find those solutions for, for members. So everything we do is based on, on needs of our members. And, and like you said off the top, a lot of those are our are, are businesses. A couple of years ago, one of the one of the programs that that our chamber uh, is partnering with you on was is an opportunity for students uh, to have work learn work uh, opportunities in the workplace, uh, mostly short of co-op because universities and colleges do a great job of co-op, which it could be a full four month or eight month work term where you're in the workplace. But many students are not able to do that. Their programs don't allow for it. But we still know that one of the one of the important things for post-secondary students is to learn in the workplace. So um, developing a program with us where we connect with the small and medium-sized businesses in Waterloo Region, partnering with University of Waterloo, Laurier, Conestoga, and University of Guelph, to get those opportunities for small businesses that may have a research project or some kind of a, a, a shorter-term pro- program or project that allows them to get some of the great talent that's here with students uh, and connect them with businesses. Let, let's, you know, why don't you describe what those work opportunity, work integrated learning opportunities are um, and why this is, this type of program is so important as we move forward in the, in the knowledge economy. Yeah, I would say two things to that, Ian. So one, at the core of what we do, we're a national not-for-profit. We're headquartered in Ottawa. We have members and partners like you guys all across the country. But I don't know what the most most necessary, most urgent employer needs are in Kitchener-Waterloo. I, I don't know what they're like in Lethbridge, but we connect with those who do, like, like you, and help make sure you have the tools and resources you need to, to meet the needs of your local employers. And so that's how we like to provide value and relevance nationally, but always, you know, it's, it's a bit of a cliche, but it has to start locally. And so that's the one big thing. Two, I, the amount of variability and the types of experiences students can have that make them valuable to them has grown significantly um, and was growing even before COVID. To your point, it's not just about a four-month paid full-time co-op placement, but during the last two years in COVID, companies had different needs, had different resources available to them, right? They were dealing with frontline workers who were being laid off. They weren't going to necessarily keep students on in the same way. Um, So we've learned a ton about what employers need under different circumstances and always at the end of the day just want to be responsive to to help them get the talent they need to get their their work done and, and provide students with those great opportunities. We know that that and again you're exactly right predating COVID talent was probably the number one issue for most business sectors is making sure they had the talent for the jobs that they had um, getting them placed so that they had had the, the, the human capital to grow their business and create the wealth and prosperity that we all need. Um, and so that problem existed or that issue existed before COVID. We, uh, the Greater KW Chamber uh, uh, with our Access Student Talent Program is, a, is one of the pilot programs that your organization said, we're going we're gonna to test drive how we can connect, to your point, post-secondary employers 
and community groups like ours or business organizations like ours say how do we how do we pull those pieces together maybe talk a little bit about the program that we're doing as a pilot that we hope certainly i do one of the reasons we were prepared to to do this pilot is it's important here in the region of waterloo but it's important right across the province and right across the country that communities have this kind of opportunity to take those those students give them some work experience and make them even more ready for the workforce once they're done their schooling. Yeah, examples like what you guys are doing with your Access Student Talent Program are exactly what we're trying to find and replicate across the country. You know, the the mandate when we first started working with you guys was to provide that one-stop shop that allows businesses to easily connect with the post-secondaries to find the talent they need, right? We talk to employers all the time from all parts of the economy, all regions of the country, and a lot of them, almost all of them say, sure, if it's easy to have a student, we, we could use them to do this piece of work for us or, or that piece of work, if it's easy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to tell you or your listeners about how much uh, is on the plates of, of small and medium-sized companies, especially as soon as it's hard, it, they're they're onto what has to has to get done, and so creating it, making it easier for them to find the talent. You know, you guys can leverage. I know their existing relationships that you have with the post secondaries in and around the region. It makes things so much easier. Uh, and at the same time, a big point of what I think you guys are doing is help a educate. Might sound wrong, but the, raise the awareness about the value of students and the ease with which you can bring them in for any type of project and it doesn't have to be that full four month term. So those are the key components that I love about your program. And they're the key components that we're trying to um, get other groups like yours to, to create in their own programs. Yeah. And, and I think over the two years that, that our program has been running, one of the things we promised was to do a, a how-to manual or, or the, the how would you replicate this in another community across Ontario, right throughout Canada um, one of the things that, and and we we've we've had this dialogue back and forth, saying we hear it all the time, is that for small and medium sized business, they kind of say, "Isn't it great that we got Waterloo Laurier Conestoga here?" But they're big organizations, and they can feel to a small business too complicated for them to kind of navigate. And so yeah. having Allison and Gabby and, and Bridget here on our program make that make that universe smaller and say. You know, you've got the, the the welding shop or the or the uh, the professional services firm. You make that connection for them so they can place that place that student. Um, and and for us, that that to me is is what what the utility of making sure that we get through this this first two years and say how do we make it work? We know, and COVID has been in the middle of that. We 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 I think we've done a pretty good job of getting the numbers even in the midst of that. But we have to be thinking longer term, like how do we get when we're through COVID, how do we get more business, especially small and medium sized? Because this is a talent stream, too. We should be looking at those students in any one of our communities and saying we want them to stay in the regional water to get their job, uh, you know, settle here, buy a home and be part of the community. Yeah, it's it's exactly true. And, you know, we know from the data we collect that students who get those work experiences are more likely to stay in and around those regions. The, the stickiness, if you will, of the connections with the community really often are anchored first and foremost for a job experience. So whether that's a, a part-time job on the side or a, a job or a work opportunity provided through their, their degree or their diploma. And, and we, we know with, 
with every sector, and it doesn't matter which one, because there isn't a sector that doesn't have uh, job openings. And right across the region of water, there's thousands and thousands of jobs that are available right now because it's hard to find folks. So even having uh, that that part-time research project being done, but you make a connection with with that student, and it, it allows that pipeline to, uh, that talent pipeline for the small business to start to grow. Listen, over the next five years, and this is this is the bit of the longer term, um, but there, what what would be the developments that that you still think need to happen to expand those work opportunities for students to learn from actually being in a workplace th- that need to happen over the next five years? I mean, because we're doing it as a pilot um, over the next five years, how do you see it evolving to be benefiting more businesses in more places? Oh man, that's a big question. Um, we have so many ideas about that, Ian. Um, I would say to start with that we absolutely are going back to our, we have right now 42 partners, delivery partners. So, so like you guys, 150 partners in total across the country. First, the two years looking backwards, what worked, what didn't, what do you wish you had? What do you, could you have done without to do a proper analysis audit, if you will, about the, you know, People say the good practices, I'll take good practices. I don't always need the best practices. So we can learn and glean as much information as we can from what we have already done. So that as we turn and look forward to the next five years, we can make small incremental improvements. Every program has a chance to get a bit better. Some cases, some of the programs have a lot further to go than others, but no matter what, we can create those improvements. And importantly for us is to make sure that we are targeting the most underrepresented students. We have so much information from employers talking about work integrating at work integrated learning as a social equalizer. You know, you don't you can talk to your kids, talk to your kids, friends, talk to your friends. Often that first job comes from a connection someone had, and it's not necessarily just based on your grades or your resume. And so creating that exposure to a network for all students. Um, it is a way to get there an equal chance to get into a, a career path that will set them up for success. So for example, we're really focused in the next five years on international students who, again, and this ties with, with immigration, bringing more people in to fill the job vacancies that businesses have. Um, folks don't know, but the international students who come here have limitations on how much they can work, where they can work. And so Get, we are one of the programs that can provide experiences for international students. And so we're going to double down on that. We're going to make sure that those students who are in rural, remote, northern parts of the country have access. Again, the virtual world having opened up exposure to students who might not have immediate proximity to some of your businesses, but might be able to get those opportunities. So, so those, are, those are two of the big things anyway in the next five years. Well, that, that's incredibly important. We know all that new employment in the country is going to come from immigrants and newcomers to our country. We just uh, That's just the reality with the job openings that we have. And the work that we do uh, uh, along with the Immigration Partnership of Waterloo Region and trying to connect employers to newcomers uh, and then the, adding this layer of students, and many of whom will be, as you say, foreign or, or um, um, foreign foreign students, that there's a great opportunity to, to to further those connections and get those folks that that don't have the connections right away. And that's the role that not only the chamber plays, but our staff in the Access Student Talent is that making we're making sure we make connections between students and the employers uh, to, to make sure we make that happen. 
Listen, um, emerging from the from the pandemic, I mean, the, the as the economy re, re, uh, re you know reboots and and we you know fingers crossed, there's positive things we're gonna we're gonna get back to uh, to to more of a, a new normal in in the economy. Um, more and more employers are 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 needing are going to need skilled workers, and and whether that's in the trades or specialized uh, um, parts of the workforce. Um, so there's, there's going to be more of a need for upskilling or reskilling in, in mid-career uh, workers. Um, th- that's got to be part of the mix here too, right? If, if it, not everyone is going to be a new student. There could be folks that are coming back. How does that play into the work that, that the roundtable is doing? Yeah, you could have teed that up for me any better. You know, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to make sure I talked to you about that we our members care so much about their existing workforce. I was just talking to a CEO, um, uh, Linda Hasenfratz, yesterday, actually, who's the CEO at Linamar, which is just down the street from you in Guelph. And it was saying, like, what are your biggest, what are those biggest challenges for you right now when it comes to people? And she said two things. She said uh, automation and immigration. We have to get more people here. It, in on the floors, in terms of trades, in the knowledge economy, in terms of, you know, uh, those types of jobs. But we need more people and we need to bring in people with the skills we have to automation. We have a lot of people who are working now who need they don't need a completely new job. They don't need to completely change sectors, but they need upgrades to the skills they have to stay relevant as we gain productivity by automating some of the the tasks that should be automated. And so on that piece, and we are actually leading a charge, there's some federal money that's been committed to this about creating over 15,000 new jobs for people who need some kind of upgrade in their skills. And, um, And that can be anything from maybe it's a month of training to a longer term uh, placement, but, and I'll finish by saying it turns out that a lot of the work we, you guys, our other partners have done on Will over the last three years is and can be applied to existing workers. There's not a totally new demographic group uh, and a lot we can leverage from what we already know, which is pretty exciting. All right, stick around. We got a few more questions. I want to finish this, finish this conversation. We're going to take a quick break for a quick news break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue the conversation with Val Walker. She is the CEO of the Business Higher Education Roundtable. And Val, before the break, we were talking a little bit about talent. Well, a lot, this whole question's around talent, but we were talking about specifically the, the talent gaps that exist for businesses and for, for the students that we're training and those that are upskilling. Um, budget 2022 uh, announced yesterday. Uh, Minister Freeland, um, uh, there was a great many uh, focuses from uh, on, on everything from uh, uh, military spending to uh, the green economy to um, uh, you know dental or uh, the dental program that, the, as part of it. But one of the things that was clearly was on talent and on on skills and training. What are your takeaways? That's your space. What what did you hear in the budget that, uh, and let's put a positive spin in this, that you think is a positive step forward for the issues we've been talking about, but more generally um, making sure we have the workforce of the future? 
Yeah, you're right. There's a lot in there uh, for a document that's certainly been shorter than the last few budgets. They managed to get a lot in there. Uh, in terms of talent and skills development specifically, there were three big things that stood out to, to us at BEHER that were very positive signals. Number one, they talked about helping young people get work experience. They nodded specifically to continuing to support that kind of work, which let's be honest, that's the kind of work uh, we do. Uh, and, and so we're, we took that as a very positive signal for us personally, but also to show that their continued commitment towards that priority is, is there. But there's a couple of new things in there that we're also really excited about. One was a specific employment strategy that will be developed for people with disabilities. Um, we know that there's a, an employment gap between uh, able-bodied and, and uh, disabled peoples and sort of focus and build out a strategy that particularly recognizes the opportunity to bring more people into the workforce is, is really encouraging. And, and we have some work ongoing right now with the Center, Canadian National Institute for the Blind on some of that work. So that's, that's pretty awesome. And then the third one was a very significant nod to immigration and, and contributing over $2 billion in the next five years to help bring more permanent residents to Canada. And so that I think shows the balance of bringing, again, bringing people in as well as helping support and develop the people who already are here in Canada. Well, as you know, uh, b- budgets are at the uh, seventy thousand foot view, so we'll see we'll see what translates down to the down to the shop floor. But it, it, it that that part was encouraging news. Listen, last uh, forty five seconds or so we have. I always ask this question to the folks that have been com- coming on over the last six weeks. Everyone's experienced COVID differently individually. How we've reacted, where we've been. Uh, our our personal and and professional uh, uh, functions. What are your, what is your what's your the one takeaway from the from the last two years that you would uh, you would you would make mention of? I think I've been reminded recently that you know every day you need to take full advantage of because you could maybe next week get locked in your house for six months or <laughs> you know or or work work super hard for for your entire life and then um have something happen that cuts your life and your retirement plan short so to to make the most of every day i don't mean that to sound like a cliche but it's an actual reality that i sometimes i love my work but i'm committed to finding balance and making sure that we all get a chance to connect with each other again good advice from val walker she's the ceo of the business higher education roundtable thanks for joining us today thanks for having me all right, it's time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be, we'll be in conversation with Matt Bondi, and he's both at Communitech but also chairs the Trillium Foundation. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I am, in fact, Ian McLean, and I am joined by a good friend of mine, Matt Bondi. He is the vice president, uh, a vice president of external relations at Communitech, uh, but he's also the chair of the Trillium Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Listen, uh, we can always talk about the exciting things happening at Communitech, and we'll we'll get to a, that a little bit. But I wanted to have you on today for uh, one reason, uh, that you are the relatively new chair of the Trillium Foundation. Um and I think it's important for people to understand what the Trillium Foundation is and why it's important to communities right across the province. So let's start there. 
what is the Trillium Foundation? You and I, and some, you know, if you're interacting, you may know, but many people may not know what the Trillium Foundation is and, and, and its importance. Absolutely. Well, the Trillium Foundation is uh, the largest social services granting organization in the province of Ontario. So if I had to really put a fine point on it, that's what Trillium is. And it was founded, um, it was founded actually just about 40 years ago. We're heading into uh, our 40th anniversary celebration this November, which we're very excited about. And uh, the organization was founded in 1982 under the uh, provincial Bill Davis administration to help meet community needs, um, become more uh, resilient to support uh, social services so that, you know, as Ontario grows, it grows equitably and everybody uh, has as much opportunity as possible to thrive and succeed. So, so when you say social services granting, what would be some examples be practically? I mean, what would some of the the grants that would be made out of out of that uh, organization to uh, you know organizations that people would know here in Waterloo Region. Great question, Ian. So here's a few examples just from our own hometown here in Waterloo Region. Um, not long ago, there was uh, a range of grants released uh, to organizations, including the YWCA of Kitchener Waterloo, uh, the Community Justice Initiatives of Waterloo Region, Kitchener Blues Festival. And uh, under a, a different funding stream, uh, the Community Building Fund, uh, the city of Kitchener received support uh, for roofing upgrades to the Bright Up Pool and the community center. So what's really interesting is um, in this year in particular, the, the Ontario Trillium Foundation has done something that has never been done in its history, which is it has administered twice the amount of funding as usual. So under usual circumstances, since 2015, which was the last time there was major reforms to the organization, the Ontario Trillium Foundation has been pushing about $100 million out to eligible organizations uh, to help um, those organizations uh, take care of folks in our communities. And um, Minister Lisa McLeod, who is minister uh, responsible for the Ontario Trillium Foundation, was given an incredible uh, responsibility and vote of confidence by Premier Ford by being asked to administer an additional nearly 100 million that is earmarked specifically to help organizations and communities with COVID recovery. Yeah. And, that, and that's so important. We know, uh, and one of the other parts of our, uh, where we intersect on a, uh, well, you might say all too frequent basis, but we've been, we've been on phone calls two or three times a week for the last two years as part of the business economic support team of Waterloo region. Of course, that's, the two chambers, Cambridge and Greater KW, Communitech, uh, Waterloo Economic Development Corporation, Explore Waterloo. But part of our conversations are not all just business oriented. It's like, how do we help the community get through through COVID? And how do we get to that recovery? And it's not all, it's certainly about business, but it's also about strong municipalities, strong civil society, the universities, the hospitals. Um, th- that's an important part that, that Trillium can support uh, along with, you know, aside from the traditional parts of, of government funding in, in, in the community. So talk about how that, how that matches together. That, that, that's mm-hmm. a lot of money that goes into communities, and that's communities from in every corner of the province of Ontario. That's right. That's right. And never is, is enough, Ian McLean, to your point earlier. So uh, it, yeah. has, it, has a real, uh, it has been a real pleasure uh, working so closely with you and, and Greg and the other folks. Um, So you raise a really interesting point, Ian, and I think that one of the things that makes um, our organizations 
uh, so aligned, the chambers and economic development and tourism and community tech, is that we all share a belief that business alone does not create prosperity. Business alone does not create a great community. It's, it's a key piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only thing. And we need to make sure that there are strong services and opportunities for everyone in the community so that as we grow, we can grow equitably or else what's all the growth for, really? And so um, one of the one of the you know, just to localize the conversation a little bit about the Trillium Foundation and it's it's kind of uh, working in tandem with the business community to make Ontario you know, the best place we can. Um, I think that if you look at the Waterloo region as a tech cluster or you look at the Toronto Waterloo region corridor as the uh, world's second largest and fastest growing tech cluster anywhere, anywhere in the world. We want to learn from and avoid, to the extent we can, some of the mistakes that I think other jurisdictions have struggled with. And that's not a criticism. It's just how history has unfolded. So you look at places like um, Seattle, places like San Francisco, um, where there is enormous inequity, um, a tremendous amount of uh, homelessness, um, a lot of um, kind of inequitable growth that has fueled some of the challenges that those those cities are facing. I think we have the will and the opportunity in Waterloo Region to grow differently. So um, I think that Trillium plays a role in making sure that we don't leave people behind and focus just on business or just on tech. It takes everybody around the, the community table uh, to be successful. So whether that's in Waterloo Region, where a lot of the growth is in advanced manufacturing and technology, or it's in places like Windsor, Ontario, where a lot of the growth and economic firepower is associated with the auto sector, um, it, it takes it takes not just business, but civil society and the not-for-profit sector to make sure communities are as equitable and fair as they are prosperous. And I'm really proud that I get to help out with that mission. So, so I, I'm interested. There's the, the connection that you've you've highlighted between Trillium and communities and and mm-hmm. business. Uh, that granting process. Uh, I, I don't want to do. A, I don't want to get totally in the weeds. But but how would how do organizations get connected to Trillium and what what's your process? Because it's no different than any budget any of us face. Is that there's more asks than there is money. Always is. How, how do you kind of go through that process of of being fair and equitable within the province and across communities. Absolutely. So um, you're totally right that, you know, um, there's a lot of detail associated with administering the grants. And uh, if I may, I just have to give a shout out to the team at the Ontario Trillium Foundation. Mm -hmm. You know, we take great pride in being a a governance board and, and, you know, we try to have uh, noses in and and fingers out. But I got to say, we have a tremendous working relationship with the management and leadership team. Um, I've had the privilege of spending some time with uh, most of the, the Trillium employees virtually, albeit over the course of the pandemic. And it is um, really special to watch these Ontarians at work. And, you know, you look at the impact that Trillium has by investing $100 million in our community. We're talking about maybe 100 people. This is a lean organization. Mm-hmm. And so um, they are absolute pros and Trillium has, as a result of their work, become a real crown jewel for the province. But back to your question, Ian, there are funding cycles that kind of recur on an annual basis. And something that has been exceptional during the course of COVID is that there's been that additional 100 million or nearly $100 million funding stream imposed on top. So the the uh, application cycles are pegged to 
um, standard times throughout the course of the year. Um, mm-hmm. And folks are welcome to check out uh, the Ontario Trillium Foundation website for more detail. And uh, we have staff that are uh, specifically mandated to work with organizations to understand where they're looking for support and how Trillium might intersect with them and help them make sure that they put their best foot forward. No, that's awesome. Listen, um, I wanted to, get to talk about that first. That's one of the reason I first reason I wanted you to have on. But I, I want to pivot a little bit to the work that you you mentioned, Communitech and the and the things we're doing. One of the things that Communitech has done, which is where there's great synergy between the business community broadly, the certainly the chambers of commerce, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, saying we have to support our Canadian businesses mm-hmm. through the pro- procurement process here in, uh, in, in Ontario and, and across Canada, frankly. But one of the things that, and this is what early on in the days of um, uh, Ian, Al- Ian Klugman, the predecessor to your, to your new CEO, Chris Albinson, really took the lead, you and your team, of when we, we had literally no PPE in hospitals or other things at the start of the pandemic, you kind of led on making sure we had those things in place. Part That evolved into... Tony at the Economic Development, the Chamber saying, how do we pivot and get businesses that, that will suddenly on a dime start to develop those, those safety things? All of which led to one of the things that we didn't have enough of was we were not building the stuff we needed or making the stuff we needed here in Ontario. And we certainly weren't making it easy for a small, medium-sized business to buy from any level of government, whether it was healthcare, municipal, provincial Talk about the work that you're doing on procurement, because I think that uh, meaning small business having access to the billions of dollars that governments uh, here in Ontario are already spending, because it's so important to job creation, keeping talent in the places we need and, and, and creating the innovation that's required uh, as the economy evolves. Absolutely, Ian. That's a very, uh, a very, I think, gracious segue, because as as you know, and, and some of your listeners uh and may be aware, uh, in Budget 22 at the federal level, um, the, uh, the Trudeau government just announced yesterday in their budget uh, a $30 million investment in uh, CanHealth, which is an organization representing innovative hospitals across the country, led by Dr. Dante Mora, who does a phenomenal job, and Communitech as its exclusive partner, uh, led, of course, by my CEO, Chris Albinson, whom you mentioned earlier. And that $30 billion is going to go into an integrated marketplace strategy, which is all about procurement. So think about it this way, Ian. In a nutshell, uh, hospitals own healthcare problems. Communitech founders own healthcare solutions through their technology. So let's create table space to find the right problems, identify the right solutions, then get them, A, adopted, and B, scaled throughout the system. And so uh, we are very proud to have received that um, announcement of $30 million yesterday in the budget. Grateful to Minister Mary Ng for her uh, vision uh, to push that forward and to the finance minister and the prime minister for their support. And, you know, Ian, I'm really pleased to say as well that there has been uh, a lot of positive movement at the provincial level as well. And I, I suppose I should just disclose that I had the privilege of working as deputy chief of staff to Doug Ford uh, prior to joining Communitech. Um, but long since I've left um, government, there has been some really great reforms happening. And so recently, through um, her red tape reduction bill uh, just several months ago, Minister Nina Tangri pushed through some reforms, including the Building Ontario Businesses Initiative, um, which has really artfully, and kudos to the officials, the public sector officials in the Ontario Public Service who were involved in this, really artfully uh, helped to level the playing field for domestic innovators seeking 
public procurement contracts against um, offshore uh, competitors. Really artful job to make sure we're still in line with all of our trade agreements, but we're leveling the playing field for domestic innovators. So I'm seeing at the federal level and the provincial level, and I will say that Communitech has been kind of a dog with a bone uh, on these files for the last couple of years, since the pandemic especially, we're seeing positive movement. And this is a big, complex problem. This is not something that gets solved overnight. You can have tons of good people and tons of goodwill, and it's still a tough problem. But we are making progress, and we've been working shoulder to shoulder with you, with the Cambridge Chamber, Economic Development Corporation, Tourism Waterloo Region, on issues like this for some time, and it's great to see some progress. Yeah, you know, what's important about that is, is I mean, we, we first would hear about this years ago, four, five, six years ago, as the new innovators at at Communitech in whatever space they were, it doesn't have to be healthcare, would say, you know, I've got this great product, but I can't get in the front door to, of the municipalities, the province, or the federal government. And they have more success in many cases, we've heard this time and time again, better success selling to the New York state government than any level of government here in Canada, which is ridiculous. You can still respect trade agreements, but know that there, there is a role to play of saying we are going to support especially the small and medium-sized businesses that need that first contract. Because once they've got their first contract, you've said this time and time again, they'll compete with anyone around the globe, but they have to have that first contract. That's the, that's the, the part that's, that's the grassroots. That's the shop floor. And that's what we're working on. And, we, and, and I do think we are making progress on that. Absolutely, we are. And, you know, it's a timely observation, Ian. So I was chatting just this morning with the founder of one of um, Communitech's uh, just terrific uh, founder organizations, our partner um, and member companies, uh, J. Paul Haynes at eCentire. eCentire yeah. is an incredible company, just did uh, a big raise in terms of um, attracting capital uh, from the market to uh, continue growing their operations. They're a cybersecurity company, and they're one of the best in the world. And, you know, they have such a hard time getting into public sector procurement contracts in Canada. They have major accounts, which, you know, using discretion, I won't share specifically, but major municipal and private sector accounts in the United States. And it's, they have a heck of a time getting any attention in Canada. And so uh, from a uh, cybersecurity perspective in this instance, we're looking forward to working with companies like eCentire as part of this new Can Health and Communitech initiative to uh, find solutions required in the healthcare sector and getting them adopted and scaled. And my hope is that maybe eCentire will be some of that, uh, see some of that opportunity, as well as, you know, the range of 1,200 or so founders we have the privilege of working with. Well, one of the no- things we know, and we didn't get to talent today, but we'll have you back on it's, uh, maybe on business to business, because talent is, is such a critical component to everything we do. There's there's shortages or uh, there's, there's, there's job openings in just about every sector, including tech. Uh, but what we do know is that the private sector is going to have to be the engine that gets us out of out of COVID and and gets our economy, um, you know, firing on all cylinders. And a big part of that is helping our giving our companies. And this is where I think we can respect trade agreements and still have a level playing field because it's not actually giving a hand up to small businesses; it's allowing them to even compete on the same level as other foreign companies and larger companies because uh, it's going to be so important to our to economic growth. Uh, coming out of COVID. Absolutely, Ian. And something that I'm so excited about is the opportunity to, you know, help establish a bit of a bipartisan consensus on some of these issues. Like these are not left-right issues. These are just smart issues 
You know, when you look at items like public sector procurement, leveling the playing field for domestic innovators, you know, I can see appeal to, you know, um, you know, one side of the political spectrum because it's pro-business, you know, uh, an opportunity to help businesses grow and, and win uh, contracts and, and compete. And I can see other sides of the political spectrum feeling like, wow, this is a great pro-worker initiative uh, because, you know, uh, for example, in the Building Ontario Businesses Initiative, there's provisions where if a domestic innovator is paying a higher wage than, say, a competitor in China is, that gets taken into account in terms of the points awarded with awarding the contracts. So th- this is pro-worker and pro-business at the same time. And it's great when, when levels of government and different political parties can circle on these issues together. All right, listen, stick around. I want to, I got a couple more questions after the break. We're going to take a quick news break. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Matt Bondi. He is the vice president uh, at Communitech and also chair of the Trillium Foundation. Matt, um, as I think we alluded to, we have spent a lot of time on Zoom calls uh, over the last two years. And, and most of it is, is less specific to either Communitech or the Chambers. And it's really been business broadly and how we support the community over the last two years. And that's been like, through our two or three times a week with our Best Waterloo colleagues. But it, I've always asked this question. So it's just that lens that you and I talk frequently mm-hmm. But everyone has experienced COVID differently, and we've we've all we've all looked at this. I, I just said to you in the in the break, you know, you have young kids, uh, and so that's been different when you're working at home. Mine are a little older, so I didn't have the same experience. But everyone has experienced COVID differently, both personally and professionally. What what are what are your takeaways uh, from from the last little bit? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question, Ian. I think um, maybe. Maybe a quick comment, and then I can reflect a little bit on on what our experience has been like. I think right now, uh, the mode that I'm in is just trying to give everybody grace and space. We have been through a lot. You know, this has been a very traumatic experience. And even when it comes to mask wearing, for example, you know, wearing or not wearing a mask does not have to be a political symbol. We don't have to be ideological about things. Let's give everybody space to make the right decisions uh, that make them feel comfortable. If you want to wear a mask, and I particularly encourage you to keep wearing a mask for a long time. Uh, but, if, you know, people want to keep wearing masks, wear masks. Make sure, like, be comfortable. You'll protect yourself. If you don't, let that be okay, too. So grace and space, I think, is the order of the day coming out of the pandemic. Uh, as far as uh, our experience, so uh, my wife, Jessica, and I, Jessica, of course, works at uh, House of Friendship in town, as you know. And uh, our two kids, our son Rowan is seven and our daughter Blythe is just about five. And I think that our experience has been that um, the pandemic has hit everybody with more of what they already had. So if you're maybe someone who, who feels a little bit lonely sometimes in life or, um, you know, the, the pandemic made you really lonely, really isolated. If you're kind of overwhelmed, like a, if you've got a couple of careers and a couple of small kids like Jess and I do, you really got a lot of that during the pandemic. So I think uh, part of what I'm going to remember is the stress associated as a, a youngish, uh, you know, um, two career family with small kids. I'm going to remember the pretty excruciating stress of trying to work and parent at the same time when the schools were closed down and we were working from home. I got to tell you, Ian, like, um, 
even even when we're when we're presented with with needing to do some of that here and there, if say kids uh, get pushed out of school temporarily due to COVID exposure, um, it almost brings back some of the old stress uh, mm-hmm. in the same way. So just just uh, that was really hard, and we also tried to make some lemonade with it. You know, we 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 probably managed to get closer to our kids, uh, which is great. But we're also mindful of you know how kind of privileged we are, and there's a lot of kids who. Um, are worse off as a result of this pandemic. And that's part of that piece of, you know, we can't just grow our way to a great future from a business perspective. We got to take care of each other too. That means social services. It means not-for-profits. It means business. It means good community leadership. Um, so we've been through a lot and we got to give each other grace and space. Yeah. I know that's, uh, that's really, I think an important uh, uh, comment to make is that coming out of COVID, we're not through it. It's not, not done with us. But we can learn to live with it. We have to be smart about it. Um, but mental health and how kids have been impacted by this, how businesses have been, you know, in many cases out of business or have really harmed. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of healing to do. And, mm. uh, and I think that uh, um, our community will do what it always does, which is come together. Listen, fascinating conversation. I'm really interested or thankful for the opportunity to hear more about the Ontario Trillium Foundation. Uh, but thank you also for, for sharing some of the observations around Communitech. Appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, such a pleasure. Thanks to you. Thanks to producer Polly and the whole team. All right. We've been joined by our good friend, Matt Bondi. He's the vice president of Communitech and the chair of the Trillium Foundation. It's time for a news break. Coming up after news, we're going to be joined by Mike Harris Jr. He's the MPP for Kitchener-Conestoga. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We are, as promised, joined by Kitchener Conestoga MPP, Mike Harris Jr. And uh, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thanks, Ian. No, it's good to be back. Listen, we've, uh, we have, and, and some would say, you would probably say, we've, we've talked more in the last two years, probably, than we have in the previous two years. And that's been a function of the important things that we've, what we've needed to do uh, as a community and as a provincial, you as a provincial government uh, around COVID. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but I, I wanted to touch on something that, which I know uh, was really important, took a long time for you to put forward, get through the legislative process. But you, you put a private member's bill. And for people that don't know, private member's bills generally never get passed. There are very few of them that make it into law because if it's not government legislation and moved through the government process, it rarely gets done. Um, but you've, you've got, you, you, you had a, a private member's bill uh, around the uh, school buses. So tell us about, about the bill itself and, and maybe a little bit about the journey of how long it took. Yeah, this was, this was something that, uh, that, kind of came to me actually believe it or not through uh through minister vic fideli and really kind of getting into the the nuts and bolts of how uh, government works ministers can't actually introduce legislation outside of their ministry so this this was brought to him through a a group that's uh located up in in northern ontario in a small town called mattawa which is just east of north bay and obviously growing up in northern ontario um you know we've been down in the region here about 10 years now but uh, still have a lot of a lot of contacts and family back back up north, and um, the the Ranger uh, en français say uh, Ranger. We'd know it better as Ranger, um, <laughs> but uh, their their family actually um, 
lost a uh, lost a, a son, a brother, um, to uh, a vehicle that blew by a school bus while it had its lights on, while the stop arm was out, uh, and unfortunately struck and killed him. And uh, this is the Let's Remember Adam campaign. So Adam Ranger up from Ottawa or from Mattawa, and uh, they they've been really on the forefront of of kind of bringing this to people's attention and trying to build awareness. And so, you know, I thought, hey, listen, let's introduce some private members legislation that would change the way that school buses look from a uh, from a lighting perspective. And instead of when you're behind that bus or in front of that bus, you see those red lights come on and, you know, yep, okay, the bus is going to stop, but maybe the bus still goes another kilometer down the road. You're not sure. Can I pass it? Can I not pass it? What's happening? So what what we did is we're adopting uh, really the... Um, that we'll say North American standard of having amber lights or yellow lights and red lights on the bus. So think of it like a stoplight. Amber lights come on, you know that bus is going to come to a stop very shortly. And once those red lights come on, that means do not pass the bus. And Ian, if you can believe it, we are the last jurisdiction in North America to adopt this. Why, why would that have, to, I mean, you know, best practices are one thing, and it'd be one thing if you said, geez, there's only one province and three states that are doing it, but you have better part of, in North America, four, 50 states and, uh, and 13 uh, territories and provinces. How does it that we've, we were, you know, the last uh, to get to the party? So interestingly enough, I don't actually have an answer for you on that. We, we have done uh, the better part of a year's consultation on this. Uh, and that's, that's how long it takes to get kind of a, private, a good private member's bill ready. Uh, you know, you're consulting with the community, you're consulting with stakeholder groups, the bus companies, working with the Ministry of Transportation, working with the Ministry of Education. And for the life of us, we just couldn't find out why it took so long. And I, I think, you know, whether or not it was that there, there wasn't, you know, a really a willing champion or a big enough driving force behind it to, to push it through. But as someone who has five kids in the public education system and, and one of my children takes the bus to and from school every day, like this was a no brainer for me. So I was pretty happy to, to push this through and, and see it done. And it was passed, like you said, and it's actually going to come into effect this September. So anybody that's listening, you'll, uh, you'll get a, a little bit of a sense of kind of what to look for when you're seeing those school buses on the road come September. Is, is part of this educate? I mean, part of this is always educating people about what's it going to look like. Like, how are we going to let people know you're going to see something different when you go past Empire School or uh, W.G. Townsend in Kitchener or where or up in Woolwich Township or in Elmira? People got to know what the, uh, is there an educate education component to this part because I think it is important for people to understand there is a change um, and, and that what they should be looking for. Yeah, I think the really the, the best part about this is that it, it really does clear it up and makes it far less ambiguous as to kind of what's happening. We all know what to look for when we come to an intersection with a stoplight, and this is really no different. So the way that kind of the, the rules are set out now is that you can still pass the bus if the red lights are on, but you can't if the stop arm is out. And I don't think a lot of people really realize that that's the case. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cut and dry now, you know, yellow lights are on, the bus is going to be coming to a stop. And as soon as those red lights come on, if you pass that bus, you know, you're putting, you're putting a lot of people at risk. And a big fine and rightfully so if you're yeah, if you're absolutely. Doing it. Um, maybe describe just, you, you talked about the year of consultation, but 
uh, it what must have been longer than that from the uh, the idea of having the conversation with Vic to it being passed and coming into into law it's got to be the better part of two or three you know over two years anyways i mean I, the wheels of government never move fast enough for for some people you know that we've talked about this before but is that is that it was almost two years or plus two years plus yeah it really was so i i was lucky enough my first piece of uh of of government or private members legislation that i introduced actually got adopted into government policy which is great didn't pass uh through the legislature but i think they thought it was so good that they actually wanted to to pick it up and that was the uh, the car dealership uh, digital dealer registration, right. which I know we, we've talked about before. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was great. We actually just did an announcement with uh, Minister Romano uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, on that down in London, which was fantastic. And uh, seeing that program roll out to be able to have car dealerships actually licensing cars in-house and not having to you know wait at Service Ontario and, and take the time that it needs to go back and forth and do that. But this this was a labor of love. This took a couple of years to to really from concept to dealing with the um, you know the legal folks and and legislative uh, legislative research and trying to figure out you know all of these have to have their little bits and pieces of proper wording and 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 how it gets laid out as a bill um, and and trying to figure that out and then of course a consultation and then passing it through first second third reading in the legislature going to committee takes a while. Yeah. But uh, I, I think you and I both agree we, we wish that uh, government and, and the legislature might move a little quicker on some things. Um, but, but it was really good to get this across the finish line. Listen, I, I guess that's a segue to the last two years in particular. And, and you were always successful. We, we've known each other for years and years, dating back to, uh, to when you did live up north. And I, I was, uh, worked on your dad's campaign I don't know what year it was, not to 90, 99, I guess. Um, but one of the things is, is the, the, the working with the community. You were always accessible before the pandemic. I think what, one of the things, and I'm interested in your take on this, you know, there are still politics or always kind of was, but I think there was a, there was this during most of COVID, we all realized that we all just have to work together, whether it's the business community, the healthcare sector, MPPs from all sections or all parties, the MPs, the municipalities, because no one, we're in, we were in uncharted territories. There were no good answers. And I guess that's the piece people need to kind of keep in mind is there wasn't a playbook and there wasn't good answers. The, the working with community part was you were always available to mayors and and you know the business community and those that wanted to be in touch because you had to be and you're with the pipeline of saying here's how things are happening in the region of waterloo and here's what's important i mean that was my observation i'm interested in your take is is that is because that's what it felt like to me yeah i, th- I think you're 100 percent right you know we it, it's funny we're we're kind of blessed here in in the region with that kind of mindset to begin with and I think that this really just kind of put a magnifier on that and really showed that when we when we do all kind of, you know, row the proverbial boat in the same direction, you know, we can get a lot more accomplished. And and we've, you know, from a from a federal level to a provincial level to a municipal level um, and even to more of that grassroots level. I think that when when you kind of see what the pandemic, um, maybe some silver linings of the pandemic, if you will. Um, we're really, at least from the perspective that I've seen, uh, really trying to keep that going 
and and really working towards a common goal of of doing doing the best that we can not just for the people of you know whatever city or town we're from but but also from a regional perspective and a and a provincial perspective now now one of the things and and of course this is the practical part of it for for the better part of two years um i know we've been working at home since march the 12th of 2020 and our office is doing some renovations now, but we're still not back in the office. Many businesses are just slowly coming back, but a lot of this had to happen over good old fashioned phone or via zoom. Uh, and so staying connected with a community and, and your riding is, is a pretty wide. It's, it's a big riding. It's not an urban riding. You have the township, you've got, you know, you're part of Waterloo. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big swath. Um, did you find that a challenge to stay connected or, or did the technology allow you to, to, to stay connected? Um, uh, it's not the same as in person, but it did it allow you to, to stay connected. Yeah. Like, our, listen, you're right. Our riding's pretty big. We're a thousand square kilometers. Um, and it, it, it encompasses kind of, uh, we'll say the extreme Southwestern portion of Kitchener proper, and then Wilmot, Wellesley and well, or, uh, and Woolwich township. And, uh, we, we pivoted pretty quickly. Uh, we were able to kind of get it together and, and figure out this kind of, uh, you know, the zoom, zoom landscape, if you will. Uh, and, and of course the good old fashioned telephone. Um, but we, we really tried, uh, tried our best to be, uh, accessible in person when, when, you know, the need arises as well. You know, there's often people, especially that, uh, contact our office that, maybe we're kind of the last resort for them. They may not have the, uh, the, we'll just say the technology at home to be able to, to do these kinds of things. Right. So we, we want to make sure that we're, we're accessible. And, um, when, when we could have the office open, we would do that, uh, when it was sort of a little bit, um, you know, down, down the road of the pandemic. And once we kind of figured out sort of what was going on and, um, it's, it's been good. It took, I think it took everybody a little while to kind of just figure out how to, to make it work, but, but, it, but it's been nice because it really cuts down on some of the travel time too. So we're able to pack a little bit more into the day, whereas, you know, we might need 45 minutes in between, you know, our meetings to get to the next place. Right. So I think it, I think all in all it's uh, it's worked, but we're ready. We're ready to, to see everybody face to face again. <laughs> well, speaking of seeing people in person, the uh, I'm told that there's a provincial election on June. Oh, you heard. Did you hear that? I didn't hear that. Someone, I heard that via the grapevine. Um, you're running uh, for re-election for your second term um, uh, in, in Kitchener, Conestoga. Uh, I, maybe just last, we got about two minutes before we go to the news break. Um, what's, what's your sense? I mean, the election it formally gets started, I think, right at the beginning of May, if I'm not mistaken. But we're, we're more or less starting into the election campaign. I know you've been canvassing. Most of the candidates have been canvassing. Um, you know, what do you expect from the election? Yeah, well, really, kind of things are starting to heat up. Like you said, where we expect, uh, you know, the writ to drop somewhere probably around uh, May 4th, 5th, 6th, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, obviously, the June, or the, the election being June 2nd. Um, and we've been out pounding the pavement. Um, we've been meeting with folks all across the riding. I think uh, a lot of the things that, that people are, are focusing on, obviously, you know, COVID and, and the lingering effects from that. Uh, hearing quite a bit from the business community, uh, as you, of course, uh, would be as well. Kind of looking at, uh, you know, what what are some of the different things happening there? But, you know, the the main thing that I've that I've heard from from almost everybody is just, you know, they they want to kind of get their life back, 
and and get back to whatever the the quote unquote new normal looks like. Um, but but we're talking about pocketbook issues too. Like when we when we look at inflation and the cost of living and cost of housing and and all of those different things, you know, those really have a, a big effect on people. And I would say that that's probably the number one thing that we're hearing at the doors. And uh, I, I know that from a you know a progressive conservative perspective and a and a and a Doug Ford perspective, that's really where our our heart lies. And and we want to make sure that we're continuing on with those promises and and putting more money back in people's pockets. Well, I, as we've you and I have talked many times, is I think everyone's ready for COVID to be over. Um, whether COVID's done with us is another matter, but we have to learn to, we do have to learn to manage through it. Um, but that means, uh, the, the bottom line for businesses can't close down again. So tell us what the plan is to stay open. And that's, uh, that, that's, that's an important piece because I think people are, are really looking for, for that because they do want to get back to their lives. Listen, well, stick around. We're going to, we're going to have you back after the break. We're going to take a quick news break. Uh, and we'll be back with more on Kitchener today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Mike Harris Jr. He is the MPP for Kitchener Conestoga. Uh, before the break, we talked uh, a little bit about your private members bill and working with the community through COVID um, and the upcoming election. But one of the things in the last few minutes we have, Mike, and, and I've, I've always, you know, I've, I've left room for this with over the last five or six weeks of having people doing this show, which is is fascinating because everyone answers it differently, is everyone in has experienced COVID differently. And I, I, I we were talking before the break, my kids are a little older than your, well, I'm a lot older than you, but my kids are older than, uh, <laughs> than your kids. Um, so having the kids at home and having you know, the, the space in my home with two kids was a completely different experience than you who have five kids, all of whom were a lot younger. And I remember, you know, I'd say, hey, Mike, can I talk? Give me a second. I'm dry. I'm helping someone with, you know, like math. And then I got to go to the geography assignment. And so like we all have experiences differently, like different ages, different how our jobs, uh, the things that we've done. And so I'm kind of interested, you know, as you as you reflect back on the last two years, whether it's personal or, or professional or both, what do you take away from the last couple of years of COVID? Yeah, I think this, you know, the, the interesting thing um, is a lot of people, um, you know, they assume that as a politician, you know, you're 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 just kind of holed up in Toronto or, you know, in Ottawa, depending on what's going on or. Um, but like, we're real people too, Ian, um, we've all got families, we've all got families. We all face the, uh, the same challenges that, that everyone else does. And, and you're right. Like my, my oldest is in high school and, and youngest is, is (laughs) if all goes well, graduating from junior kindergarten this year. And, uh, we, we've been, you know, kind of trying to share resources at home and space and who gets to use what desk and what computer and (laughs) trying to figure out how it's, hey, listen, when you've got a big family, these are logistics you've got to think about. But, um, it's, it's, I, I think it's really kind of, um, maybe shone a bit more of a light on, on some of the things that we take for granted on a daily basis. Um, you know, a, a big shout out to, uh, to all those teachers that, that pivoted to that online learning um, and, and having to deal with moving their classroom virtually. It, uh, it certainly wasn't easy. And I, I got to see five different versions of it. And uh, 
it, it was it was neat to see how each each child kind of interacted differently. And um, I, I think that when we when we look at the bigger picture, um, it, it really kind of gave certainly gave me a lot more empathy for for the other people that were that were trying to do this, too. And uh, it, it's it's not just about, you know, putting forward private members bills or, you know, government legislation or what have you. Um, you know, we're, we're also real people, too. And I think that 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 um, that really resonated personally with me when I was talking to folks that were going through a lot of the same struggles and, you know, b- business owners as well. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that my wife's home and and was able to really handle uh, uh, a, a big load when it came to uh, to dealing with with the kids in school. And, you know, I was I was going back and forth to Toronto and, and you know, we, we didn't shut our legislature down like we were still fully functioning. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, it was it was certainly it was certainly tough, but we got through it. Um, you know, we're coming out the other side of this. I think a lot of us, um, you know, from a from a perspective, uh, just at least from a government or, or a, um, we'll say like a political perspective, uh, better and, and thinking a little bit more about the ramifications of what we do and how it will affect people. So I think, you know, from a, a, a parting thoughts for me, that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. It's always fascinating to hear how people have, uh, um, you know, different stages in life, different, uh, d- different jobs. Uh, everyone has been impacted, but I think the, th- the theme that you rightfully pointed out is everyone has been impacted by this. Uh, I don't know how you could you you possibly couldn't have been impacted by COVID, but uh, our community uniquely situated to get through it better than most because we do support one another uh, in a way that many other communities don't. So take that message back to the legislature. We need more Waterloo Region in uh, uh, in Ontario and across Canada. Listen, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. No, absolutely, Ian. Anytime, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right, we've been joined by our good friend, uh, Mike Harris Jr. He is the MPP for Kitchener, ta- uh, Kitchener Conestoga. It is time for a news break. Coming up after the news, we'll be joined by Joe Birch. He's the Chief Operating Officer of the Kitchener Rangers Hockey Club. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. As promised, we are joined by my good friend that I've never met in person, uh, Joe Birch, and he is the Chief Operating Officer of the Kitchener Rangers Hockey Club. And Joe, we were uh, joking just before you came on air that, because uh, I was trying to remember whether you got here three or four months before the pandemic started or after the pandemic. And and I'll let you tell the story, but we have known each other now since uh, since June of 2020. And our good friend, Karen Gordon, who's a mutual friend of ours, introduced us and said he's coming He's a great guy. You'll have to get to know him. But we've never actually cast eyes on each other except for through a Zoom screen. But uh, t- tell people who who you are and where you came from, first of all. Well, for, first of all, thanks thanks for having me in. And uh, it has been an, an, a really amazing uh, journey. You were one of my first phone calls when I when I got hired, uh, oddly enough. But uh, I, we were saying offline, I, I, I think I kind of uh, came to terms in agreement with the uh, – with the hiring committee of the Rangers in and around middle of March. And we were supposed to meet in person. And I got the call saying, Hey, Joe, we're going to have to postpone our meeting to finalize the details of you coming to Kitchener because the restaurants are closing in Kitchener. And, uh, and lo and behold, the world we're in. And I, and I officially started here in June, uh, June of 2020, June 1st of 2020. And uh, it's been an amazing 
I've been asked several times what it's been like, and it's been no uh, nothing unlike any other regular hockey season. I've had a, a really tremendous experience. I've looked at it with the glass half full and being positive and working with staff and learning. And I came from the league office, uh, the OHL office, where I had about uh, 13 years of cumulative experience in various roles there. I was also an NHL PA certified agent for a couple hockey seasons. So I came with all kinds of experience, all but how to handle a pandemic, which many other business owners or uh, people in our everyday lives had never been through. So it's been a whirlwind. I had lots of training and experience in various different elements as it relates to hockey operations, hockey uh, business uh, operations, uh, both sides, which are essential in my day to day here. But um, nothing, nothing could have forecasted or a playbook to get through what we've been through. And uh, we're coming out of it, which is really exciting. And it, it's great. I, I, I still look forward to our day. We can fist pump and shake yep. hands. Oh, it's, it's coming. coming. It's coming. It's coming. We're, we're, we're on the, we're in the home stretch there. Listen, when, when, you know, we, we've often said, and you know, we, and you and I have had lots of conversations and we'll get to that in a minute about some of the things that were impacting not only the Rangers, but more broadly those in the hospitality and tourism sector, because those that rely on people coming through their doors were the most, they were the first to be impacted and they'll the, the last to kind of fully recover um, but we had we had lots of conversations around um, around the, the things that were were impacting the Rangers, and I guess maybe the, the the question that I have is when 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 the lockdown started, it would have it started for sure with 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 those restaurants and 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 cinemas and and hockey as an example, just saying. You can't really operate a team. Well, first of all, early on, you had a season where you actually. You had a cancellation of the balance of the season. Then you had a partial season. Um, talk about how that impacts your operations, because you, you really can't operate when you don't have bums in seats and you're not actually playing hockey, because it's pretty hard to be a hockey club when that's the case. Yeah, well, uh, you can it, you can do it. You just it's not at this level, right? And yeah. and we rely probably about eighty percent or greater of our revenues are from from tickets. And then the balance would be from uh, sponsors and partnerships. And uh, it, it, uh, you know, with a whole, an entire canceled season, now people forget about you, Um, you know, and and, and rightfully so in many ways. And I say that respectfully because uh, I have got a good perspective about what really was important and and life was important. Hockey was secondary, but at some point we've got to get back to normal here, which is, which is sort of where we're slowly getting back to. And when we finally came back to uh, this season, Ian, we, we faced we faced uh, time frames where games were only permitted 1,000 fans. We had a time stretch where we had no fans. We had a time stretch where we had zero fans. We had a time stretch where we were only for, uh, permitted 50% capacity. And thankfully, we're back to 100% capacity, but not actually 100% by 7,000 people in our building. We're slowly getting there. But... It's been a roller coaster ride, which impacts so many various uh, elements of the operation just to keep the lights on. And we've been pretty open about, you know, with the city, we had to extend a, a debenture on its term. And, and we've been pretty open about our losses and, and other things. And I'm not crying poor. Um, I am. I, I'm not. But it's just been a really reality check as to what uh, goes on in an industry that not unlike restaurants, entertainment and sport, we really re- require people to come through the turnstiles to operate where pre-pandemic levels were. And uh, and that's our goal is to get back there. 
So one of the things that and you and I would would have, uh, you know, probably conversations once every three or four weeks, right from the beginning, more or less from the beginning of the pandemic. And some of that was because I was having conversations with with the two chambers and Communitech and and the, the business organizations, but also we're having connections with the hospitals and the, and the healthcare system and the municipalities. And we would often kind of exchange, you know, like not war stories, but what were you hearing and what we thought would be the path forward. I think one of the things that struck me was the thoughtfulness that, that you and the Rangers organization had around not what the what the what the minimum was at any point during the way of saying, well, we, we guess we can open up, or what were the things that you do? Is you were pushing the envelope, saying we don't want to open up unless we're going to do it safely, unless we can do it in a way where we can have the experience for residents of the region of Waterloo to come and really experience the Ranger Nation feel. Um, and and frankly, I think maybe you can have an observation on this. The OHL, I think, really led as well as an organization. I think some of that may have been because the Rangers and other, maybe a few other clubs pushed them in that direction. But I think about how you said, when we open up, here's how we're going to do it. Maybe talk about that conversation because I think it really was a model for how can you safely reopen. Uh, and when you did it, you, you've had a pretty good track record of not having to, you've had some like everyone during Omicron, but by and large, once you've opened up again, your players have been safe, the staff have been safe, the league has been safe. Talk about what it, the, some of those discussions and issues that you had to address to get there. Yeah, well, I think you know, and, and it is, and it's 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 it is sharing more stories because there were as we started as, as everyone started to go through this, you started to discover the similarities, uh, you know, across different business sectors. And I started to really think and look like, okay, what, what are other businesses doing here and, and stealing ideas? And Ian, how do we get to be part of the chamber check? Well, why Joe? Well, because if we come back, I need to keep everyone safe. You know, uh, those types of discussions became really important. And as we started to collect things and started to do and set our own benchmark and standard here as to what would be safe for my priorities uh, players, staff, fans. And by that, because I had to have players and staff to have a, a game or to operate, and then ideally we get fans in place. So we started to, to layer things. And and we would then begin to have discussions with the league and see what other teams were doing. And to the credit of David Branch and, my, and the other 19 colleagues of mine, the governors around the board, we were the first league that came out to have a vaccination policy for our players. We were then also the first vaccination policy that came out uh, for our fans and other sport organizations followed um, right, wrong or indifferent. We didn't allow for exemptions. Uh, MLSE didn't even take that stance first. It was the Ontario Hockey League. And we really started to be, um, you know, forging away on to return to sport. And, and daily, internally, uh, I would say, okay, h- how can we get better? We, we have a responsibility. I really believe that the Rangers, our brand, and the Waterloo region have a responsibility greater than just hockey. I also believe that our Ranger reach, um, uh, I know that's the term for our, 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 our third-party uh, charitable giving group, but our reach as a Kitchen Rangers organization is greater than just the Waterloo region. It is the Ontario Hockey League. It is the Canadian Hockey League. It is hockey globally. So I really felt that uh, I was very uh, committed to our our return to play and being safe 
and in being leaders to help other sports and other organizations to be safe to be able to return. Uh, from a, a community standpoint, we all needed it. So a lot of sharing of ideas, a lot of stealing of ideas, you know, a little R&D, as we like to say, yeah. but a lot of push internally from organizations like ours saying to the league, we, we, we have to think of these things. We need to talk about chamber check testing. We need to set standards internally so that we can keep our players safe. And uh, we're really proud of the work that we did, to be quite honest with you. Well, you should be. And and, and I, I remember having conversations that we, we spent an hour and a half talking about masking at, at one yes. point. I, when we got a clip automation mask and said, you know, what should we do and and how could we brand that? How could, and, and you were, you know, I think one of the things that I was impressed with, you were saying, how can we as the Rangers push that to the broader business community and the broader community that these things are important. Same thing when we, when we were the two chambers were doing the rapid antigen screening kits and putting that as part of chamber check, you're like, Hey, can we be part of that? Like you, I think you were, might've been the first club because I remember having a conversation with your colleague from Owen sound that said, this is what we're going to do. We're getting these rapid screening kits through the chambers, which is from the provincial and federal government. And it became, that became policy for the OHL um, and so that leadership is has were, were some of the building blocks that allowed you to to stay open. Yeah, definitely, and and that was important because if if we weren't open, we wouldn't be sitting here. We're about to play our thirty fourth uh, regular season home game tonight, and and the stark reality that we faced is that we had to find ways to keep our players and, and staff safe, as I mentioned. And it was really difficult because there were there were peaks and valleys as as the season went on where. The league set protocol is it allowed for players to be engaged in community activities. And, and we know how much our fans love our players and have them engaged in the community. But, but I kept saying, no, not right now. Time's not right. We need to stay safe. We need to be conservative in our approach in ensuring that we can continue to move forward and play. And, and uh, it was hard. It was, it was really hard with sometimes you get asked for you know, somebody, uh, can we come and do a dressing room tour? Unfortunately, this year, you can't do your dressing room tour. Can, can we have Francesco Pinelli come and read at our school? No, unfortunately, we cannot. And I wasn't trying to be the mad, bad guy because I'm a former Ranger. I remember those experiences. They're special, they're unique, and they're important for the growth of our players. But we really tried to do as much as we could to be safe, uh, to keep each other safe, and to be leaders. And, and most recently, we finished the partnership in the campaign with the Waterloo Region Public Health, where we had two mobile vaccination clinics that we were held at at home games here. And I challenged other OHL communities uh, to do it. I don't know if any any other did, but but I think what we also stumbled across stumbled across is a great partnership with Dr. Shuli and her staff and her her team that maybe we've got a playbook here to help in the future for flu shots or other ways that public health units can leverage our brands, our partnerships to get to children, to help to make them aware, be educated, be safe, return to sport, all tied together. Well, uh, this is kind of my ranger day because I imposed on my good friend, Mike Farwell, to be on the show earlier, really to talk about his Farwell for hire, but he brought up um, and and wanted to take wanted me not to miss the opportunity to say he really hopes you're going to get to work because he I don't think sees you very so he's always said well he's not really at work because he doesn't see you in person very often so uh, so he's just joking but he talked about Rainbow Ranger Reach the charitable yeah, yeah. part of your in the last couple of minutes we have and then we'll have like, a couple more after the break but Ranger Reach is I, I, I think is 
maybe talk a little bit about that because the partnerships you have in the in the community go beyond the the dollars and cents of sponsors that want to be connected with the Rangers. You're genuinely in education now and healthcare and 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 community supports the food bank. There is lots of connections that the Rangers are truly a community partner. And so really talk about what Ranger reach is and why that's important um, to to the brand, because it's, it's part of the fan base. The fan base are really your, your, your energy behind that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and interestingly enough, Ranger's reach was launched just about the same time I started. So here we were, uh, Craig Campbell's done an amazing job in, in leadership there as the executive director, along with his board. And, um, and here we were in the start of a pandemic, and we have this new brand, uh, this new um, uh, uh, collaboration that will help the, the hockey club and Rangers Reach to give money into the community, to, to provide supports within the community to areas that are needed. And, uh, but we have no hockey season. And, uh, and the whole strategy really is around 34 home games and 50-50s, and then that will equate to um, you know, total dollars that we can give the boys and girls clubs, youth hockey organizations, uh, the food bank, Canadian or Canadian mental health or Waterloo region, uh, Wellington region, mental health associations and so on and so forth. Right. So we had to get creative about doing things virtually. Um, and it worked out in a great way because it helped, it helped us to use Rangers reach as a platform to say, Hey, we're willing to give, and we're going to keep giving through the pandemic to help. It helped Rangers reach because they became sort of the forefront in that, in that extension of our organization. And when we came back and now this year uh, through all of our 50 fifties here on Friday nights, and, and we've been able to really give within the community and, and support the community and our charitable charitable partners in the calendar year of uh, 2021 uh, Rangers reach uh, uh, issued out just around $470,000 in. And, and that's, you know, 50 fifties. That's uh, that's things like the Farwell for hire um, that is uh, in-kind donations. And, and so if you think about that for a second, we didn't start playing hockey until October of 21. So from January through to December of 2021, that's an incredible amount of dollars that was given into the community to help people who were in a really hard time. And uh, uh, we're really proud of that. Listen, you know, it, it is a, it's, it's such a great story. And, uh, you know, having grown up here, my whole life, I don't ever remember not hearing about the Rangers, right? Like Kitchener Rangers and the and now, you know, the Siskins as well. But certainly the Rangers was a part of growing up because it's, it's always been a quality organization. It's always been connected to the to the community itself. So fascinating to hear. Listen, stick around after the break. We're going to uh, come back. we got a few more minutes. i got a few more questions uh, for you, Joe. But uh, we're going to take a quick break. This is Kitchener, Kitchener Today on City News 570. Welcome back to Kitchener Today on City News 570. We continue our conversation with Joe Birch. He is the Kitchener Rangers Chief Operating Officer. And Joe, before the break, we talked about, you know, your baptism by fire here in Waterloo Region. Uh, it's one thing to be here as a player. It's another to come in as the Chief Operating Officer at the, right at the beginning or during during the, uh, the pandemic. Um, fascinating conversation about how you've navigated through that uh, as it relates to the Rangers and the community. Um, one of the things I've, I've asked just about everybody that's come on over the last five or six weeks I've been doing these Friday afternoons is, 
everybody has experienced COVID differently. And uh, depending on how old you are, what your family circumstances, what your job is, um, my kids are a little, I think, older than yours. Um, But working at home and kids at home and and then the professional things that you've had, because it's not just your business, you've got a community aspect. What are the two or three things that that you'll take away from the last two years of COVID? Ooh, uh, two, three, two, three. No, just one. Give me one. No, 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 I'm only kidding. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I will never, ever take anything of my family uh, for granted ever again. And sometimes, and I don't, you know, sometimes you, you, you may not have as much patience with your children or, or your wife or whatever the case might be, but my, my wife is a nurse and a frontline worker. And, uh, and I would see the exhaustion uh, in which she would come home. And I'd have to hunker down in the basement with my boys because my wife works nights. And so we'd go down in the basement and work around a card table. I'm on the laptop working the way. And my boys are, are virtually working. And, and, and it became a, a bit of a fun thing, to be honest with you, because we'd you know, the basement was only the play area for a long time in our lives. Um, but, uh, you know, just how precious things are, to be honest with you. And, and, and my family's everything to me. Uh, I have a, a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old boy and, and my wife. And um, I, I just will never, you know, never let days go by. I think that uh, when things are bad, they're not as bad as they are. And, and I think that's something I've really learned in the pandemic and really helped me manage staff here and about staying mentally healthy and positive because I would hear stories from many frontline workers, my wife included, of what they were going through. And I saw the impact on her and them. And, and uh, you know, and I, and I just, I'm reaching over here, but we're going to celebrate frontline workers. I know this is unscripted. We're going to celebrate frontline workers oh, yeah. and our frontline heroes tonight, actually. So we have about 400 frontline workers who are coming, who are all going to have shirts and they've been given free tickets and other things. And it's just our way to say thank you to so many great people, uh, restaurant workers, or, you know, anybody who's been able to help us through this thing. But I just, you know, I want to live every day to the fullest, uh, love my kids, love my family and uh, really stay positive as best as I can. And maybe just to follow on to that, um, you know, one of the things that we always pride ourselves here in Waterloo Region is that we work collaboratively, that there's a lot of yeah, uh, yeah. collaboration and cooperation. Uh, and you're, you, while you were here before in, in those last two years, have, was that, was that more obvious to you that, that, that everyone was working together and it didn't take long for, if you had a question that you'd get that answer? Cause that to me is, I mean, one of the learnings I've taken away is lived here for 50 years. We said we did that really well. I'm not sure we were ever as good as we thought we were, but we're sure good at it now because it, it was, it served us well that, that, that working together thing and and cooperating and collaboration and supporting one another is is it's really baked into the pie now from my my perspective. Well, I couldn't agree more, Ian. And I don't have all the answers, although you know my role is you know the chief operating officer, and I'm supposed to know all the intricacies. But I have a super super talented staff, and when we didn't know the answers, I'd call you, or I'd call other business people in the community. But um, collaboration of a high-functioning team. I'm a former hockey player. I, I like to keep things simple. And, you know, I work with my staff, and they, they laugh at me sometimes. And I say, Alex, you're our graphics person. You're our power play specialist, you know. And <laughs> Adam, you're my VP, and you're our goaltender. You hold the fort together. But, but it's a team. And uh, that's, that's the only way I think that we uh, can get through some of this stuff. And I actually think it's how we will grow and go forward 
is by being a really high functioning collaborative team. There's never a bad idea. We have to be innovative and uh, we'll continue to operate that way because I think it's actually, it creates a, a really healthy work environment where everybody has say and, and is included and, and whatnot. But um, collaboration has been uh, really a crit- critical piece with not in, just internally, but externally. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I talk to Mark Hunter a lot and uh, I know that's our arch rival, the London Knights, but he and I had to collaborate on, on, on ideas because his market and his organization is very similar to ours. Yeah. So I had to collaborate externally too, but it was really important. Listen, fascinating conversation. Look forward to having you on business. I'm going to pre-book you right now. We're Amazing. going to have you on business to business to business uh, to, to continue the conversation. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking time. Thanks, Ian, for having me. And, uh, you know, to everyone out there, we, we continue to say thank you for your patience and your support. Um, it's been amazing, and we're, we're getting through this thing. All right. We've been joined by our good friend, Joe Birch. He's the Chief Operating Officer of the Kitchener Rangers Hockey Club. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. Many thanks to producer Polly and executive producer Brittany. Total pros that dragged me along for five of the last six Friday afternoons. Really appreciate that. Now over to the afternoon news with Aaron Anderson and Paul McPhee. This is Kitchener Today on City News 570.